So we're going to talk about carbonara. So the main thing is, yeah, when was it invented? No one actually knows. There are some absolute kooky Italians out there that'll tell you the legend of the pasta recipe that was passed on from generation to generation since the time of a secret revolutionary society known as the Carbonari, <laughs> which is actually a revolutionary society. And this revolution, they're like, we need a cheap food that we can make for all of the people yeah, following our revolution. It doesn't actually explain how it came from them, but it's just that's what they were actually called and this group of people did actually exist. That's the most random one I found out of the thing. Welcome to The Dish, the culinary travel podcast focusing on the stories behind world-famous foods. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us for tasty histories, destination food guides, and more. In this episode, what to eat in Rome, pizzas, pastas, and rice. It's going to be a carb fest. The history of carbonara. It's quite different from what you'd expect. Plus, a little deep-fried street snack with a built-in surprise. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Carbohydrate Festival podcast. (laughs) Or maybe just this week. Carbs make me so happy. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of carbs in this episode because we are going to Rome in Italy. The Rome. Definitely not the Rome in America. I think there's one in America, isn't there? There always is something in America that's the same name as a European city. It does my head in. (laughs) It is definitely a different place. But yes, heading off to Italy, you definitely want to wear your stretchy pants. (laughs) Yeah. Or there will be some consuming of food. And I think possibly a little bit of wine. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely always about the wine as well, Mm. because you've got to do something to soak through those carbs. Exactly. You know, it's it's washing it down. And it's also, you know, just keeping you from being thirsty. If you're going to be in Italy in the summer, it can get quite hot. You don't want to get parched. Wine. Exactly. Hmm. And so, yes, actually, this is the dish. This is one of our what to eat in episodes. We are not the Carbohydrate <laughs> Festival podcast. Just Making for, mental note for future podcasts. Yeah, that could be our next podcast. Who knows? Yes. And so we're going to be talking about pastas, pizzas, rice. It's all carbs based stuff in this episode. Don't think you're going to find any healthy food with this one. I don't think. No, no, no. I almost, I was almost going to talk about artichokes and then there was so much information. I was like, wow, that's almost an episode in itself. (laughs) And artichokes are very popular in Rome. I do like artichokes. I think it's a very split thing for a lot of people. You you either love them or you hate them. Uh, I don't mind artichokes, but I know a lot of people that are like, eh, pass. But the ones they do in Rome are like deep fried. So there we go. (laughs) Couldn't even make artichokes healthy. As the Roman way. So, yes, before we get fully started, please remember to subscribe. If you're not already subscribed to this podcast, click do it now. Button right just click now. that button so that uh, you can get some more episodes and be notified when we release new episodes. And most importantly, just tell a friend. You know, we just want more listeners. That's what we're all about. Bring it up at a dinner party. Say something to someone at work. Yeah, if you learn some interesting facts on this show, then show off your knowledge to friends. Play us while you're carpooling. Yeah. Hey, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're driving and you're, you're the driver of the carpool, just be like, my choice. And but put then us it's on. essential if you're carpooling that everyone else in the car has to subscribe on their phone whilst you're on the way to work. Yeah. My so, car, my rules. Yeah. So just get everyone to subscribe that way. It's like, if you want to lift to work, then you need to subscribe to this podcast. And that's how it's done. All right. Let's get into it. Now, normally at the start of these What to Eat in episodes, I do a brief history of the destination. <laughs> um, a brief history of Rome. Right. 
No. Yeah, that's not happening. That's a whole podcast episode. That's a whole podcast series. That's a series. So let's just face it. I mean, Rome's the capital. It's like some Dan Carlin like series going on. Like each episode is five, six hours long and it goes forever. It's ridiculous. So obviously some of you guys probably know some stuff about Rome already. Some of you have probably been there. Did you eat all the foods we're going to talk about today? Who knows? But yeah. Of course, it was the seat of the Roman Empire, but pretty much all of the food we'll be talking about today arrived to Rome much more recently. And we're talking about food that you can eat there now. We are not talking about ancient Roman food. We are talking about modern Roman food that you can go and try for yourself. Maybe one day we will do a a historic episode on Roman food because they did have some really weird dishes. Mm, That sounds interesting. Yeah, but this is not it. Today we are talking about stuff you can eat when you're there. Quite a lot of street food as well, because uh, the Romans like their street food. Yeah, I didn't realize that because, you know, the main things that pop into your head with Rome is like pasta, ris- you know, risottos, pizza, but not just a slice of pizza. Like um, you sit down and eat an entire pizza with a knife and fork. Uh, yeah. You don't think of street food, take away sort of easy stuff. But Romans do. They do, yes. So we had quite a lot of street food and we're going to talk about some of that and a few other dishes as well. So let's get on with our first dish. We're going to the rice side of the carbohydrates first. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is supli. It's one of Rome's smallest little street snacks. If you're just looking for a quick bite that's bursting with flavor, then eating some supli is a really good place to start. It might not be a quick bite because it came out scalding hot. Oh, yeah. Sorry. A slow bite, but a fast <laughs> meal service. An easy snack, yeah. It's like already cooked and ready to go pretty much and you just grab it. So we actually went on a food tour when we were there and we asked our guide, Tony, who is an Italian who grew up in Australia, but then moved back to, to Italy and has been living in Italy for 23 years. Uh, we asked her to tell us a little bit about her take on supli. Hi, I'm Tony Branca Desano, and we've just done a food tour in Rome, which is the Trastevere Street Eats with EatingEurope.com. Um, I'm going to talk to you about supli, which is one of Rome's famous street foods. Supli are risotto rice balls and probably one of Rome's first street foods. It wouldn't have been uncommon to see men frying them to order on corners a hundred years ago. The first ones would have been made with chicken, heart, lungs, livers. Pork was also a big ingredient. Pork is still a big ingredient in many of the Ro- much of Rome cuisine. Um, the traditional name for the Roman supli, though, is supli al telefono, because when you bite into it, the mozzarella that's squished in the middle as you pull away should come away and it resembles a telephone wire which is why they're called supli al telefono. Um, the rice is cooked, the classic one that we had today, the rice is cooked in a bolognese sauce, in Rome it's known as a ragu. The rice, you then roll it into a ball. You probably let that get cold first though, it's going to become sticky. Though the place we had them, they make thousands a day, they don't have much time to let the rice get cold. The mozzarella is squished into the middle, bread crumbed and deep fried. Street food to eat, not just for lunch or dinner, any time of the day. I mean, it's quite common to feel a bit peckish in your office. Maybe in the mid-afternoon, you pop out and grab yourself a soupli. And what would happen if you came here and tried to order an arancini ball from one of these places? Well, good question, Tom. Some people do also sell arancini, but arancini, which is most foreigners come here and go, oh, arancini, arancini, the Sicilian version, slightly different. A lot of them are shaped uh, in a cone, maybe to resemble uh, the volcano Etna. Uh, The rice is cooked in a broth, often saffron is added, so you have yellow rice surrounding the centre. The centre is a bolognese sauce, usually with peas. I mean, also getting back to supli, you had a classic one. These days they make them also to replicate the Roman pastas, so you might find supli alla carbonara, supli cacio pepe, supli alla matriciana. So yeah, lots of choice. Perfect. So they're not going to completely laugh you out the shop if you order an arancini when (laughs) they understand foreigners don't know what it is. 
No, I mean, a real Romano who maybe only makes souple might give you a filthy look. But as, as I said, where we went today, they also make arancini. And there's also a couple of places here that actually their main food that they sell are arancini. So, souple was already common on the streets of Rome at least 100 years ago, but it has definitely been around longer than that. It has likely been made in Rome at least since the 1700s. Ooh. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's been around. Uh, it's believed it got the name during the Napoleonic occupation of Rome, when Napoleon's French soldiers took over lots of Europe. They also took over Rome for a while. Yeah, so in the early 19th century... It's believed that French soldiers tried these little fried rice balls and they would remark, surprise, oh, surprise, I'm the French soldier, surprise, because they were surprised that it had gooey mozzarella in the middle. Uh. They were expecting it just to be like a deep fried rice ball and then you bite into it and you've got all this gooey mozzarella that goes everywhere. It is this really flavorful rice and then... It just is stuffed with so much cheese, which is the molting lava. That's what I said. It's like super hot. Mm, Yeah. And I love the cheese. Yeah. The French people were surprised about it. And apparently, surprise came to souple, souple. And apparently that became the Italian name that stuck. I mean, it sounds like one of those crazy made up stories. Yeah, it's probably not true at all, but I like it. So let's roll with it. It's a fun story, isn't it? Now, the original pre-souple was the Rigage de Polo. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that a bit wrong, but um, basically these were rice balls made with chicken heart, lung, and liver. Yummy, yummy. Mm, that, that would have been be the original. Su- supri- that would be a su- surprise. Surprise. <laughs> like, guess what's in it? Lungs. Lung, heart, and liver. And you'd be like, ah, <laughs> you got me. So this was always like a really cheap street snack sort of style of food. Yeah. Although people would also make it at home as well. So yeah, you know, you could be using up yesterday's risotto. And you're just mixing it with some bits. extra bits of meat yeah. or some sauces or whatever. Yeah, you're just using up all the bits. Then deep fry it. And there you go. Italians are very good at using everything up. If there's one thing I've learned from being in Italy is that nothing goes to waste. So, and then they started putting cheese in the middle. So, the question is, are soupli related to the more famous arancini? That's what I thought. And if so, which came first? So the so, arancini obviously comes from Sicily. Sicily, yeah. If you don't know arancini, it's there. Deep fried rice balls. Tony explained that they are different, not just in terms of the types of flavors, but also generally in terms of the shapes. Some arancini in Sicily, which are ones I've never really noticed, I only went there once briefly, they actually have pyramid-shaped arancini. Ah. So like on one side of Sicily, they make them pyramid-shaped, and the other side, they're more ball-shaped. The other ones have sort of spread around the world because they're easier to make, I guess. We totes have to go to Sicily. If anyone's listening that works for uh, Sicily Tourism Board, oh, yeah, yeah, we will know. happily take a trip there and do an episode on your fabulous shapes of your arancini balls. Invite us over. We'll be there in and a flash. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to note, though, what I've sort of seen from the research probably is that the Roman soupli, which appeared around about the 1700s, probably predated quite a long way before with some sort of pre-arancini ball, maybe not the modern one. But in Sicily, uh, it was actually really common for Arabs who were living there in the ninth century to roll up bits of lamb inside a rice ball. So it's not exactly an arancini and it wasn't deep fried, but it was just a tradition that you put something inside the rice, rolled it up, then you ate it. I mean, it's it's not a far stretch to think that people would do that. Yeah, exactly. So it sort of developed from there. So they were already doing something like it, but arancini probably as its modern form wasn't even close to being around in the ninth century. The shape of those original balls, 
this is conjecture really in my opinion, but this is what a few websites are sort of saying. Uh, it's similar to a little orange, which it is. It's sort of like a really small yeah. little orange, like tangerine or something. And apparently the word for orange is arancia. And so it's possible arancini developed from arancina, a little, uh, from arancia, a little orange. Interesting. Little orange ball shaped sort of thing. And of course, when you deep fry it, it goes that sort of brownie color. So yeah, if you, so many of these food stories where they're like, oh, you know, it's sort of, it's basically the same as an orange. It's like, it's nothing like an orange. It's nothing like an orange. What were people doing back in those days when they thought these things looked like oranges? It's it's sort of round and it's sort of orangey colored, but it's brown. We'll name it the same thing. Sure, it's the same thing. So, you know, could these original ninth century little rice balls have been what developed into the deep fried arancini that we have today and eventually then moved to Rome, which was then transformed with like local varieties and local fillings? Uh, it's possible, but there's no sort of definite direct evidence of that that we can see. But it's definitely possible that someone went to Sicily and then came out to Rome and went, hmm, that was a good idea. Mm. I'm going to do something like that. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's like it's a rice ball with meat in that's deep fried. You, you could have invented that somewhere else. It's definitely something that could have happened at two places at the same time. Yeah. Or two places at completely different times without ever having really been inspired by the other dish. So exactly. Pretty hard to say. But there's no doubt that today, supli is very much its own dish, and it's not really the same as arancini at all. And it's based around, especially now, like the modern ones are based around the classic flavors of Rome. So the rice will be mixed up with some sauce. It might be mixed with like some meat ragu. Uh, It might, well, some of the more fancy versions now, they mix it with like a carbonara type sauce Mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, they mix it with like the local cheesy sauce flavors, and then they deep fry it. So like each one you have could taste a bit like a different Roman dish. Yeah, none of that makes me mad. Yeah, and none of that is really based around Sicilian cuisine, of course. So it's like, yeah, whatever the origin was, it is now very much its own style of thing. And it's super popular. So not only were the street food versions we're getting like very easy to find, but also there's loads of restaurants that actually serve it as well. So it's not just a street food. Yeah. And people might make it at home. We and of course, it's super cheap. So if you are on a bit of a budget in Rome, it is a great thing to grab when uh, you're a bit scrapped strapped for cash yes exactly uh some suggestions of where to eat that and any of the dishes in this episode do look at the full article foodfuntravel.com slash rome podcast and we've got some other things on there you can find out lots of other dishes because we're not talking about everything today because there's lots and lots of things to eat in rome i think i've got way over 20 different dishes for this article So that's dish number one, the soupli. Let's go on to another form of carbs. We're into pasta carbs. Yay, my favorite. So we're going to talk about carbonara. Let's mm, do that. Carbonara. So well, first up, before we do talk about carbonara, though, so Rome has like four typical pasta dishes that are like their four most popular, that they're everywhere, massively popular with locals. But I mean, carbonara is like the one that everyone's heard of. Definitely. And I think probably everyone would have at least consumed at some time in their life. Probably, yeah. If you're from any sort of like European country or America, you're bound to have had a carbonara in your life, right? Yeah, for sure. All right. So carbonara. So once again, we have another dish where the origin is very much discussed and very, very heavily Fought over. Of course. Uh, no one actually really knows where the original came from. Many would assume that it's actually a ancient Roman classic dish. Once again, I mean. Roman it, classic as in like the Roman Empire yeah, pre-4th century. People just assume that it's been around for like forever. But actually, it seems like, to be honest, more people started hearing about carbonara in like the 50s, 60s. Really? In, in, in Rome, yeah. So it might not actually have been a popular pasta dish until the 20th century. Yeah. What? So I have like, there's a ton of stories here 
It's all hearsay. It's all hearsay. So, um, honestly, no, I don't think anyone has a clue how it came about. But what we do know is carbonara roughly means in the manner of coal miners or the carboni. Um, mm. So, all right, carboni. Carbon, carboni. 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 Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of what it means. And there are several competing theories, all anecdotal. Let's. First, then I mean, firstly, just for people who maybe don't know what a traditional Roman carbonara is, to say what what is the Roman carbonara? What, what like the ingredients? Okay, so what you'll have in an Italian carbonara is you'll have eggs. You'll also have a combination of pecorino romano or like Parmigiano Reggiano because they love their cheeses. An air cured pork cheek or pancetta for a salty porky hit. Um, and the pork cheek is called uh, guanciale. 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 And actually, um, it's not very specific what sort of pasta you put it on. You can put it on spaghetti, linguine, uh, rigatoni. Everything's actually acceptable. So Fettuccine. it's a little bit flexible, but probably people have their own opinions of what they think the correct carbonara exactly. is. Oh, and don't forget the black pepper, because that's where the reference comes for the coal miners. Oh. They think, they think. All right. And we're going to get into Lots that. Lots of black pepper. So, yeah, that's pretty much what you're going to get in an Italian carbonara. So, uh, first story, as I mentioned just before, the meaning of alla carbonara is like coal workers style in the man- manner of the coal miners. And so, this implies that the dish was eaten by the, the coal workers. And this is the thing I was saying and that the abundant use of coarsely ground black pepper resembles coal flakes. So, that's kind of where... Because obviously coal miners come out of the mine and, and they're just like, shake it Hang off on. into their meal. Yeah, I'll put some coal in this. Or why don't I use black pepper instead? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to put way too much black pepper on just because I'm a coal miner. Yeah. So the whole thing is they say that the uh, coal workers brought the dish down from the mountains with them. And this was something that eventually made its way to Rome because the ingredients could be gathered in local farms and kept without refrigeration. It's very much a fresh dish. Apart from the pasta, everything else should be fairly fresh and it's easily made while traveling. So these coal miners uh, would travel into Rome and they brought it in with them and that it became popular and that's how they got that. So the air-dried guanciale can be kept out of the fridge, but pancetta should be refrigerated. So the guanciale is probably more likely the meat that they would have been using originally. Yeah, I mean, the pancetta is the modern version of what people are putting in it now. But essentially, carbonara is a cheap dish. It's not meant to be fancy. It's a cheap whatever you got lying around that keeps and is easy. Like It really is. And we'll come into another few more of the theories that kind of explains that a little bit more. So, yeah, once again, still in the mountains, in the, the Apennine Mountains of Abruzzo. They think it was made by woodcutters there who made charcoal for fuel. And they would cook the dish over the hardwood charcoal fire and they would use penne rather than spaghetti because it was easier to toss with the eggs and cheese. All right. It's just another random story. I don't know. Another one, and this seems to be the most popular according to the internet users, uh, is that, and this is one you'll really read on a lot of articles, is that food shortages after the liberation of Rome, that happened in 1944. Um, So food shortages were really severe. And so allied troops distributed military rations consisting of powdered eggs, bacon, and people took that and they mixed it with water and they u- used it with their dried pasta because, of course, dried pasta lasts and it's not a thing. So, this is the thing where I was saying it's a very cheap meal that they just made with what they had during the times of, um, of you know, just after the war it ended. All right. 
There is a similar story to that as well, also with the liberation thing, but with a little bit of a twist. Instead of the Allied troops actually handing out military rations to the people because they were hungry, they sort of suggest that there were just troops everywhere in Rome and they didn't really have a lot to do because they'd already liberated them and they, of course, were looking for a meal. So they were said that some of the restaurateurs were looking for a meal that would satisfy American troops and they came up with the idea that to feed them an Italian dish but with two of the most classic ingredients that came from an American breakfast so they felt a little bit like home (laughs) bacon and eggs. I think that story is complete crap. But it was another one that I read. It's the first one that people seem to say is... is it's because it's the most entertaining and ridiculous story. It's really qu- it was this really long, detailed article. It was a full story about how it came about, and it was such a marvellous idea and it spread in popularity. I mean, the thing we do know is that this is sort of around about the time that Americans did start see- you know, seeing it back you know, being cooked at home. So there is this idea that the GIs sort of took this dish back with them Mm. and started cooking it at home. And that's how it became really, really popular in the United States. Well, it would make sense that if this dish really is that modern, that it wasn't people emigrating from Italy that brought carbonara and popularized it. Yeah. In, in the US, it would have had to have been something like that, more sudden. Exactly. Yeah. So with this particular s- story, speaking about where the name came from, it suggested that once again, we're looking at the wood or the coal that burned under the stove, which is it carbone in Italian, carbone, carbone yeah, like- in Italian. So coal under the stove, carbone, carboneara. Carbonara. 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 So, yeah, that's a really popular theory with a lot of people, but there are a lot of Italians that will tell you that the GI story actually makes no sense at all, mostly because you can't make carbonara with powdered eggs. No, it would be rubbish. Yeah, it would be really rubbish. But, you know, back then you did what you could, so. It could have been a precursor and then they realized, well, hang on. Now we've got real eggs. Let's make this better. Yeah. So the main thing is, yeah, when was it invented? No one actually knows. There are some absolute kooky Italians out there that'll tell you the legend of the pasta recipe that was passed on from generation to generation since the time of a secret revolutionary society known as the Carbonari, <laughs> which it is actually the, a revolutionary society. No, it wasn't. It was, a, uh, it was a, a society. I think they were in the 1800s. So it really wasn't passed down by that many generations. And this revolution, they're like, we need a cheap food that we can make for all of the people yeah, following our revolution. It doesn't actually explain how it came from them, but it's just that's what they were actually called and this group of people did actually exist. That's the most random one I found out of the thing. But um, there is one thing that you know all these people will argue about who did what and who invented what and when it happened, but pretty much there's one thing that all Italians will agree on and that is that carbonara should never have cream in it. Yeah. I don't know who did that. I don't know who started it. I personally think they should be shot. Well, I know there's going to be people out there going, well, I love it with cream. What are you talking about? But I know plenty of people, they're like, if you go out to a restaurant, they won't order carbonara because they think it's too heavy. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. That dish is too heavy. I, I can't eat it all. It's too much. But- if you have a real carbonara experience that does not have cream in it, it does not. It's actually um, they take the raw eggs and they stir it until it's like a cream-like consistency. It's a very tricky dish to make well, with the heat and everything. I make it egg yolks only. So I don't know if Rome, did you find that out or it's up people's personal preferences? 
but I Italians do not use cream. No, egg yolks only, no egg white, not whole eggs. I never use whole eggs. Ooh, that I don't this actually is because know. if you have the white in there, you can't make it creamy. Yeah. So if Romans are doing that with the white, they are geniuses. I don't know how they're doing it. No, they probably are doing it with the egg yolks, but I don't actually have the definitive yeah, answer here. Just in front egg of me. yolks. Because I guess people have this strange conception, if especially if they're not chefs and they don't really cook very much, that if they just use egg yolk in a cooked hot dish, that they're going to have this like flaky, yolky crap like you'd have in a boiled egg. But it's not like that. It goes into this perfect cream. Yeah, you it's kind beautiful. of actually imagine what you'd get in Asian food where you mix through fried egg and you get yeah, those- Yeah, like you, chunky bits Yeah, you of get those chunky orange. bits of egg or yeah, when it gets really horrible and just all falls apart. Yeah, no, it's not like that. No, it's not like that at properly. all. All right, so explain how you make the your carbonara sauce. Well, I mix the cheese grated up with the egg yolks and the black pepper and I maybe add a little bit of salt just because I like it really salty, but you don't necessarily have to add extra salt. Uh, and then just like whisk it a lot together. With a fork is fine. And it's that simple. Yeah. That's all I do. And then I pour that on. The pasta has to have already come out and started to like cool. You don't reheat. If you start heating, that's when the egg curdles and turns into yolky bits. Yeah. You use so the it heat is a of bit of pasta. a delicate dish to make. Exactly. And this is why I think a lot of people making carbonara at home basically end up with scrambled eggs pasta because <laughs> yeah. they use whole eggs. And they don't like they they put it in and then they keep cooking the pasta while stirring it in. Yeah. And it just turns into scrambled eggs. And it's terrible. And I used to do that when I was a student and I had no idea what I was doing wrong. And I was like, well, it still tastes fine, doesn't it? <laughs> but but <laughs> yeah. it's like it, it's and then you learn how to make it properly. And I mean, I don't know if I'm making it the Roman way, but I'm definitely making it a way where it comes out creamy like a Roman carbonara tastes yeah. like the same texture. So I'm not doing scrambled eggs and pasta, that's for sure. No. But uh, yeah, so what we've learned from carbonara, one, no one really knows where it came about, but they say that most Italians think they didn't really start even hearing about it until like the 50s and 60s. Two, you do not put cream in it. I don't, know, I don't know who's doing that. And, and no peas. No peas. Why no do peas. people start putting, oh, they're like, oh, but this dish is so unhealthy. Let's just put 20 uh, peas put, in if it. You must put mushroom in it. I mean, I like putting mushroom in it, but I don't think I would ever be allowed to do that in Italy. No. I'd be crucified. For me. It would be terrible. But I like mushrooms. And I even put black olives in sometimes, but I'm, I'm a horrible now person. You, you're not Italian, I though. I am not Italian, so I'm doing what I want. But at least the <laughs> texture of the sauce is right. Yeah. <laughs> even if I'm putting some of the wrong ingredients in. I don't have guanciale. Uh, so I'm putting in bacon normally. That's what I've got. I think that's the history of it. I actually think the history of the dish seems to be use what you've got, but make it well. No cream. The end. Definitely no cream. All right, we're agreed on that. Carbonara is definitely the most famous of all the pastas. And we mentioned Pecorino Romano cheese, which is a cheese made in that region from sheep's milk. And it's the cheese they use for pretty much all of their pastas. It, although they can use Parmigiano Reggiano, it which is. It doesn't come from that area. It doesn't so come from that area. Yeah. So, and yeah, we did a tasting with Pecorino Romano versus Parmigiano Reggiano. The flavor is completely different. So, if you're only using Parmigiano, then you're going to have a completely different taste to your dish. And I mean, it's fine. Why not blend them together, use a bit of each, or just get. I say use all the cheese. Yeah, do whatever you want to do. I mean, try it out, mix it up. But uh, supposedly the pure form is going to be Pecorino Romano because that's the cheese from there. People wouldn't have been buying expensive cheese from North Italy in Rome to make this dish when they had a local cheese that came from the mountains outside of Rome. So, and speaking of the mountains outside of Rome, that's really where all these pasta dishes seem to uh, have a bit of a story from. Maybe it's because of the Pecorino coming from there. 
Maybe that's what links it up. But yeah, the rules that sort of link all these dishes, maybe carbonara is the most complicated one. The other ones I'm going to talk about are actually more simple than carbonara. Uh, yeah, super simplicity, but technique. If you mix it up wrong and you put the stuff in wrong, you're just going to have like a lumpy pasta that's not very good. Yeah. So that's sort of what happens. So probably the simplest of the four famous Roman pastas is uh, cacio e pepe with pecorino cheese and a black pepper. And that's it. There's no extra ingredients added. Obviously, pasta. (laughs) (laughs) But these have all got pasta in, guys. We'll talk about that. Cacio means cheese. And of course, in this case, we'll refer to the Pecorino Romano, but that's not to say that when this dish was invented that there wouldn't have been other cheeses, just people like, whatever cheese I've got. Yep. I mix cheese and black pepper. Those two ingredients with the pasta and starchy pasta water, you mix that together with the cheese to get it to melt into a sauce. Yes, please. And that's it. And spaghetti is the most common option with this dish. Spaghetti actually is from Sicily originally, but um, spaghetti is now the most popular option with this dish. But also rigatoni is very popular as well. The thing you will find in Roman areas, uh, it does seem to be a lot more of the dried pasta, Mm -hmm. where before when we were talking about Emilia-Romagna in our other episode about like what to eat in Bologna, it definitely much is the fresh pasta. Yeah. So and 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 the sauces stick differently depending on what pasta you use. So um, this is going to be, as you said, with them using the starchy water, that's going to bind it all a little bit more, so mm-hmm. that it just it sits on the pasta rather than falling through the pasta. And I was really surprised when we discovered how much they use that starchy water. Usually, I always just throw you know it you throw it sink. down the sink, and it's so good to cook with. Yeah. You're supposed to use it like pretty much all these dishes. I mean, my carbonara, I normally have to put a little bit of starch water in at the end as well. Yep. It helps. I, I do it when making pesto pasta too. Yep. Because that's what we saw when we went and stayed in Bologna and a local made it for us in his home. He added a whole bunch of the starch water and I'm like, oh, that's what I've been doing wrong my entire life. My entire life. That's yep. why my sauce is always so thick and I have to use like so much pesto and then it's thick and heavy. It's like, no, nah, add a bit of pasta water. And it's a much lighter, nicer dish. Ta-da! So anyway, this cacio e pepe, the origins are uncertain because this one is probably the most ancient. It is basically just cheese and black pepper with pasta. So they had pasta, or at least pasta of some sort, all the way back to ancient Rome. We don't know if they had spaghetti back then because that's probably been created a bit more recently. But No, it would have been chopped dough. Yeah, I mean, some sort of chopped dough of any sort, but there would have been a pasta-like substance. Yeah. And sheep's cheese, of course, they've been making that for thousands of years. Black pepper would be imported. The Roman Empire had everything coming into Rome. Black pepper was definitely one of the spices they had. So, cacio e pepe could be an actual ancient Roman dish, just Mm. possibly. Just, yeah, maybe. We We don't know. We don't know for sure. There's no definite reference, but could be quite an old dish. Now, after that... Likely came the pasta alla grisia. And grisia is a pasta which is mixed with the guanciale, the pork cheeks, dried mm-hmm. pork cheek, uh, and pecorino only. Although some recipes I've seen say they like to add black pepper or olive oil as well. But technically, it sounds like the most basic form of this is literally just those two ingredients. So instead of being black pepper and cheese, this is meat and cheese. So, I mean, like, they're all very simple. Yeah. But once again, you've got to get it exactly right. And um, this recipe also, of course, doesn't have an exact invention date. 
at some point, once they were making the dried pork cheeks, I guess they might have started throwing them in with the cheese instead, and that could have worked. Uh, but there's actually a couple of theories about who may have invented it, even if we don't have an exact date, just based around the name of the dish. So one theory suggests that the connection is to the people from Grison, uh, a part of Switzerland that neighbors North Italy. They emigrated south towards Rome and were named the Greci. So not greasy as in greasy, but like greasy as in Grecia. <laughs> greasy. By the people of Rome. And so could these guys have come down, seen them making the cacio e pepe and gone, I'm going to do this with pork rather than pepper. Yep. Maybe. Maybe that's what happened. I'm not really convinced, but that's one theory. That's one theory. <laughs> the other theory, which to me seems a lot more likely, and we'll see why as we go on to the next pasta dish after this as well. Um, the shepherd's living around this village in the mountains, and the village is called Grisciano. Uh-huh. So, Grisha, Grisciano, the pastor of Grisciano is the Grisha pasta, so it makes sense. Now, this is only about 100 kilometers, like 60 miles northeast of Rome, and this is in the area where they make Pecorino Romano. I mean, uh, they okay, make, so that story makes way more sense. They make it in a lot of that area. So, yeah, as an etymological argument... They both etymologically can Rather make sense. Rather than a but bunch of know, Swiss people turned up and we gave them a nickname and it, yeah. And then they made some differences to our pasta. Yeah, <laughs> like, doubt it. Yeah, this seems a lot more likely. So, yeah, I mean, Pecorino Romano can be made because it's a designated origin dish now. It can be made in quite a few different areas near Rome. And this village is in one of those areas. And this, like, the dish originated from sheep farmers. So they yeah. would have had the cheese. They were actually making sheep's cheese. And they went, well, let's use all of our excess cheese to make some dinner, shall we? Makes sense. why wouldn't hey, you? I've got some pork today. Cool. All right. Let's make this um, pasta alegrisha. Uh, so, yeah. Now, so that's the first two dishes. We've had the cacio e pepe and the pasta alegrisha. Now, this moves into the, the final dish, the amatriciana. This is made with, once again, the guanciale, the dried pork. pork. Cheek. Pork cheek, uh, pecorino romano, and now tomato is added. Ah. So it's in a tomato sauce with those same ingredients. Uh, some recipes do say they add black pepper. Some even say they add chili and white wine. Ooh. And uh, specifically onion is a controversial one. Apparently there's some old recipes with onion in, but like it's really controversial whether you use onion or not because it maybe overpowers the dish. Yeah. Um, so this, if you want to have this, Amatriciana dish, the classic Roman way, you've got to have it as bucatini amatriciana. Bucatini is the thick spaghetti that has the hole down the middle. It's I like a little tube. I love that. Yeah, I know, you love that. Because I'm a pasta fiend. <laughs> yeah. So that's like the way you have this pasta. Uh, but of course, this dish also did not originate in Rome. I mean, apart from the carbonara, which also may not have originated in Rome, it's like none of these pastas yeah. technically were invented in Rome, but they all just became really popular in Rome. That's also like Rome was just a big hotspot. Everyone yeah. was going to Rome for some reason. Yeah. Someone went there and went, oh, I make this dish this way. And then yeah. people started making it. Or they moved there because they wanted to make more money and live in the city. Um, so, yeah, the original version of this dish, and this is what really lends weight to where it was actually invented, uh, comes from the small town of Amatrice, and hence Amatriciana pasta, their pasta, uh, which is also in the Apennine Mountains, and they most commonly use spaghetti. So that one is a spaghetti dish, although some sources claim originally before like the common use today that they would have actually first done it with macaroni. Everyone, everyone disagrees on everything, basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. is the problem with this. And the origin of this dish is believed to be a variation of the alagricia that I talked about before. 
once tomatoes had actually found their way into Italian cuisine in the 17th and 18th century, it was really only a matter of time before cooks started experimenting and adding tomatoes to dishes that were already sort of popular. Yeah. So, you know, pasta alla Grecia plus tomato sauce equals amatriciana. That's it. Yep. It's the same dish, but with tomatoes added pretty much. So, and then I had a quick look on the map and it turns out that amatrice is less than five miles from Griciano, like uh. seven, eight kilometers away. They're literally next door. They're both in Pecorino Romano cheese making regions. So they both got this cheese. It, like, it makes so much more sense that all of this just came together in one region than some random people from Switzerland emigrated and went, we yeah. like pork to your dish. Definitely. Like, I mean, it's possible either way, but all of this stuff just seems to add up. There's people from outside of Rome. They do this simple farmer food. They're all shepherds or whatever, and they make their own cheese. And so, yeah, cheap, cheap food. And then it ends up in the capital as food always does. Yep. And I know that we're throwing around a whole bunch of like, uh, I know you're wanting to find out what to eat in Rome and a lot of these Italian words, you might not have a clue. What we're actually saying. What we're actually saying or how to write them. So they are all going to be in the article. So you can head on there after you've listened to the podcast and check out all of the foods that we're talking about today. Plus, however many more Tomo found in his research. Uh, Yeah, at least 20 good foods that are very much Roman dishes rather than just Italian dishes that are in Rome. They're very much Roman favorites. Uh, Yeah, foodfuntravel.com slash Rome podcast for all of that information and all the correct spellings of names and some suggestions of where to eat some of these foods. So unlike the pasta alla grisia that could have been made for like 2,000 years for all we know, pretty Mm. much, the pasta alla amatriciana could not have been made prior to the 17th century because they needed tomatoes. And the first recipe, this one actually has a recorded recipe. This appeared in Lapizio Moderno, the like modern cooking, I think yeah. that means. Uh, cookbook. It was first published in 1790 by Chef Francesco Leonardi. So there's an actual recipe for that. Nice. So that definitely happened by that point. And all of the other pastas, it seems, would have been predecessors to that. So they all happened before 1790. Carbonara, though, we reckon a modern, knows, probably modern innovation. Yep. So, yeah, that's the top four Roman pastas. There we go. Yum, yum. And um, so now, time for more carbs. What? Did we have enough carbs yet? I am still. Well, that's just like first and second, you know, snacks, right? It's time for the main, the main show. Well, technically, like... The Italian thing, I don't know if we've talked about this on other podcasts, but it's like you have these little dishes, like a little pasta dish beforehand, supli or whatever, maybe, and then you go out for your actual secondi patti, your, your second course, which is like some big plate of meat. Yeah. And, and mean, it does everyone's head in that it's like pasta is first. That's a starter. It's a starter. I'm like after the pasta, I'm already like, mm, I don't know how much more I need. I already had some bread and cheese for appetizer and then there's a big bowl, bowl of pasta. I mean, it's listed and- that way, but it is very rare that Italians actually go out and eat a oh, bowl they of pasta do. and then a big plate of meat. They do. They they, I'm not saying they not don't all the do time. it. They I'm just saying it. it's not a common thing. Anyway, this next dish is definitely not a second course. It is definitely a course all of its own. We're going to be talking about pizza. What? Pizza in Italy. In Italy? Now, of course, pizza, like the history of pizza, is a massive, massive topic. So we're not going to cover that in half of a no. episode. We're going to have a full like episode, maybe double episode on the history of maybe pizza. Maybe three. Maybe three, yeah, because it's awesome. And we're going to go back to Napoli at some point, and then we're going to interview some people, and we're going to get on the pizza thing. So that, yep. that's coming in the future, but not super soon. But there is actually lots of specific Roman pizza 
that is said to be like from Rome and is spread around the country. Ah, uh, yes, it does come down to toppings, doesn't it? Uh, no, it no? does not. It actually comes down to the style of the bread. Oh, of course. Pretty much all of these pizzas, and we're going to talk about four different pizzas that are all said to have originated from Rome. They are all styles of the bread, really. And yes, the toppings do affect everything, the flavours, but it's the actual types of bread that define what type of pizza it is. So, yeah, we've got three traditional types of pizza and then a fourth type that was actually only created like 10 years ago. Ah. So that's pretty cool. All right, let's talk about probably what's the most classic one that people would recognise, the pizza tonda. This is your classic Roman-style round pizza baked in a wood oven. And it's actually considered to be more of an evening dish. So it's something you go out in the evening and sit down and they, they won't even be firing up the wood ovens till like 6 p.m. if you want to get this sort of classic round pizza. Of course, that said, if you just go to a tourist restaurant, they're going to serve pizza all day. It's probably not going to be that great. I mean, it might still be okay, but it's not like really, really classic or just be a pizza. So what makes this different to pizza? Well, yeah. So first of all, you should be getting it in the evening, your proper Pizza Romana experience. These are the super thin and crispy type. So not just like a medium thin and crispy. Look, they're really, really crispy. And like the outside, it's completely flat. So it's not, it doesn't puff up at the outside at all, really. Mm-hmm. And even like the edges around the outside have just started to blacken off. So it's, yeah, super, super crispy. So different from like a classic Neapolitan pizza. Uh, the pizza from Napoli is actually recognized with these really strict rules. It's a UNESCO heritage status pizza. So it's like very much like it came from here. This is how it's done. This is the way it's supposed to be done. Pizza of Napoli is actually referred to in Italy sometimes as pizza alta, which is the high pizza. And this is because the puff crust rises really high. It's very puffy. And then pizza tonda, the Roman one, is also called pizza bassa, which means a low pizza because it really is entirely flat if it's done properly. Yeah. It shouldn't have any puffy crust on the outside really at all. And I thought when I first saw this, I was like, oh, pizza alta. Are they saying like the ne- Neapolitans are like, mine's so much better than yours. <laughs> yeah, oh, the Roman pizza is the first. low pizza. So lame. But it's just to- talking about the crust height. It's talking about the crust, apparently. Yeah, if you're in Rome, you shouldn't be getting the Neapolitan pizza. You've got to be trying these real crispy thin pizzas. And apparently, apart from getting the raw pizza base very thin in the first place, the other reason that the pizza tonda is so crispy is because they add oil to the dough, whereas Napoli style does not. And there's a huge variety of toppings, of course, but one that caught my eye was zucchini blossoms with sausage meat. Oh, Obviously, yum. that's going to be yummy, yummy. That, especially you- in summer. That's a great yeah, topping to have in super summer. Nice. But I mean, even margarita, like it's going to be great cheese, yep. lots of tasty tomato, some fresh basil, you know, it's good. Basil. 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 All right, let's talk about the next type of Roman pizza. And apparently this type of pizza was also very much a creation of Rome that is spread around the country. Unlike pizza tonda, this one is called pizza al taglio. And it's very much a daytime thing rather than an evening thing. Although you might be able to find it at any time of day because Rome is a crazy busy place. But it's the counter service and it's not a sit-down pizza at all. So it's fully your, like, grab a slice, stand at a counter, eat, and, and go. Hot pizza is just continuously coming out of the oven, and it's pretty much luck of the draw which pizza you're going to get, because you might get to the start of the line, and then you're like, oh, I want that bit. And by the time you've gone, like, five people down the line and you're at the front, all gone, and the next oh, pizza's already out. This is, like, we had this when we were there. Like, oh, they've got that one that looks amazing. They're and, of course, gone. the four people in front of me are also like, oh, that's just come out. That looks amazing. And they all get that. Or someone just takes half of it and it's like, oh, 
and then the next person takes the other half. Yeah, and it's like, like that's wow. that pizza gone. They literally took the entire thing in, yeah, crazy. Uh, so this type of pizza specifically is always like a rectangular or a square baked in a tray yep. rather than baked straight into the stone oven. It's baked in a tray. And uh, it always has a thicker base than pizza tonda. It's uh, some say like as thick as a focaccia, but really it varies. Like they do have a few that are very thick, but they also have like a medium thin and yeah. medium base. So like all different types of pizza thickness, which is cool. Uh, and that's good. You get all this variety. It's all set out in front of you. You can be like, I want that one. I want that one. So yeah, unlike a pizza by the slice that you'd expect in New York or in, well, pretty much anywhere where you walk into a place where you're like, I'll have a slice, please. It's not done like that at all. The whole pizza is just there. They've got a big knife, sometimes scissors, apparently. I've never seen it done with scissors, no. but apparently that is a thing. And you just point at the pizza you want. You say roughly like, oh, I want 200 grams of that. I want 300 grams of that. Or like, I want a big slice. I want a quarter of that or whatever. And they just cut a bit off. And it's sold by the kilo. Yeah. They weigh the pizza slices. So and each- by weight, not by per slice. I'd literally never seen this outside of Italy. I mean, I guess it must exist somewhere because it's such a cool idea. But it means, I mean, I love this concept because I, I can't choose one thing. I think it's fantastic. You get a... a- yeah, if you can't choose just one between, like, if you're like, no, 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 I want margarita. No, 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 I want uh, meat eaters, meat lovers, which is totally Western. Not an Italian. <laughs> not Italian. Meat lovers, Italian pizza. Uh, no. But you know what I mean. If someone's in the mood for meat and someone's not in the mood, like, it's like you can just get slices of whatever you want. You don't have to, you know, cater to just one yeah. particular person. Everybody's you can, happy. You can get a tiny slice. Like, you don't have to buy, like, oh, I want one slice. And they're like, quarter of a pizza. You're just like, no, I just, just slice off a bit of that, bit of that. I think we had, like, six different yeah. pizzas when we did this in Rome. And, and when we did it in Bologna, there was an amazing place there that did it as well. We'd, yeah, we're just like, yeah, we'll have that, 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 that. Give me a little bit of everything, like, buddy. Yeah, and by the end of it, you've got a whole pizza, but it's seven pizzas yeah, in one. None of this half, half and half. Super, joking. super awesome. All right, the next type of pizza is probably the most basic type of pizza there is. Pizza Bianca, the white pizza. Uh, This name is used differently across Italy, so it doesn't always mean exactly the same thing. In Rome, it's normally referring to a plain bread pizza, which is just topped with some salt, maybe some olive oil. And people just grab like, so it's just like bread, basically. It's, it's not like a pizza yeah. pizza, but it's still called pizza bianca. Yeah. Um, so no tomato sauce. No tomato. Definitely no tomato. That is the number one rule. Any pizza bianca, no matter where you get it in Italy, that will not have tomato. Because that's technically what the bianca w- means. Like it's a white, white pizza. So like, yeah, yeah, without tomatoes. Yeah. People just grab a bit of this and they make a sandwich with it. So either they like fold it over and put some meat and cheese inside or they slice it down the middle because it's quite thick. And... Then they put some meat and cheese on the inside or something like that. Mm. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Maybe some porchetta, some ham, that sort of thing. And just, yeah. And people even just eat it plain because it's, it's fresh. Good. Yeah. I mean, fresh bread is fresh bread. It's great. It doesn't really matter. But pizza bianca can also refer to just a pizza that has no tomato sauce, as we said, which means it can be the white is more referring to the fact it has cheese on top. So it'll be just like a cheese pizza. Sometimes there's other ingredients on top, but definitely no tomato. So that does happen. You can definitely get those in Rome as well. So do check which one you're getting. If you're just yep. asking for it, make you, sure you pointed it. Yeah. And if you're not expecting it, uh, just know because you could be disappointed. I know when I first went to Italy and I didn't know and I just ordered something and, it, and I was like, Where's the t- where's, why has mine got no tomato sauce? I'd never, ever heard of a pizza with no tomato sauce on it. Yep. But it's the thing. And sometimes it works. Well, I mean, obviously it works. That's why millions of people in Italy are eating it. Yeah. And it does work because, you know, it's cheesy bread. 
doesn't have to have tomato, but I love tomato on pizza, so you know. So you might want to compare this plain pizza bianca to focaccia. It's not focaccia. No, focaccia comes from a different region. It's more, yeah, focaccia is more known to be from Genoa, uh, the Genoese. Yeah. In the northwest, and so yeah, it's not focaccia. It does have some similarity, but it's more like pizza. Yeah. It's pizza, just thick, thick pizza. All right, let's talk about the final type of pizza. This is the super modern one. It's called trapisino. Trapisino. It was invented in two thousand and nine. Very new. So it's super new, and this is like a pizza pocket. Stuffed with lots of saucy ingredients. Yeah, it is. It was super good. I loved it because I got one with uh, burrata and anchovies. So burrata is like the very, very creamy. It's not mozzarella, but it's sort of like the same shape, like balls of it. It's a ball, yeah. Yeah, but it's like way more creamy and it like falls apart into creamy, gooey, like strands. You pull strands out. There's creamy bits and there's cheesy, strandy bits all inside the burrata. And it's amazing if you've never had it. Uh, that with like salty anchovies, it was this creamy, salty wonderland. Loved it. But you can have it filled with uh, just like traditional beef stews, meatballs in sauce. Chicken stews as well. and Yeah, like whatever they've got. I mean, they have some classics on and they have of the day stews. But it's so, not going to be dry. So no. I guess that's the thing. You're not going to get dry toppings. It's going to be something stewy, wetty sort of. Exactly. And yeah. it, that's exactly why this dish came about. The inventor, Stevano Caligari, he noticed that Romans, of course, were stuffing like bits of meat and bits of cheese inside focaccias or inside pizza biancas. And he was like, well, wouldn't it be awesome if we could use like all of the classic saucy Roman stews like meatballs and tomato sauce and all that? What if we could put that in a pizza sandwich rather than just dry meats yeah. and dry cheeses. Because like, well, that would be really tasty. But the problem is it's going to make a massive mess. No one's going to eat that as street food because they'll buy one and then there'll just be food all over everywhere. their clothes and everywhere. So they're not going to do it. So what are we going to do about that? And he was like, well, if I just cut the corner off a pizza to make a triangle straight off the corner, then I could just slice the inside and you'd have this like triangular pizza pocket but the firm crust would be surrounding the whole part where gravity would be sucking the juices down. And the, you just like, it's like an ice cream. Yeah. It's like an ice cream yeah, where exactly. it just soaks into it, but it never really comes out the bottom until right at the end. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's it. That's basically exactly what he did. And so the Trapezino was born. And it's been actually, it's been a worldwide hit. Yeah. You can get them in New York now. Yep. They are all over Italy. They're in Milan. They're in the USA and they're probably going to be opening in lots of other places. I would expect to see one in London pretty soon. Yeah, if not, sure. maybe there's already one there. Yeah. I don't know. So yeah, that is an introduction to Roman pizza. Four types of distinct pizza that are totally things that people eat every day. And absolutely worth trying because it's pizza. Yeah. It's pizza. Just eat all of them. Yeah. Just do it all. All right. So, yeah, we were going to talk about some healthy food, uh, and then I realized that what there was no we, way. What did we eat that was healthy? Well, I was going to talk about artichokes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The story is so long, it's going to need a whole episode to itself. All right. So, just know that, you know, we tried. We, we, we tried <laughs> to get to healthy dishes, but after the most important dishes, pizzas, pastas, rice, we couldn't get to healthy dishes. But there's a lot of other dishes on the article. I wouldn't say they're healthy. It's like meats, like saltimbocca. I think it's uh, that's the pork wrapped in ham. Yeah, and obviously it's awesome. But, I mean, if that's I mean, all traditional dishes, but if you are in Rome, you can just get a caprese salad and 
you'll be you'll I'm be sure fine. you can. I of don't course. know if it comes from there specifically. That's what they're saying. I don't yeah. I don't know if it's particularly Roman, you can get whatever but you, you want. can get salad, of course. Of course you can get salad, but why would you? Yeah. Not if you're on vacation. And yeah, there's so many calories don't so many count on vacation. I've said this before. So yeah, and we didn't make it to dessert either. There's lots of pastries and stuff that are more breakfast things, but you can also have them throughout the day. Well, the thing we tried was unique gelato. I mean, it's not a traditional Roman thing, but there's quite a few people in Rome now that are making interesting flavoured gelatos. The debate, is it Roman? Is it from Emilia Romagna? Emilia Romagna seemed to be like it is from here. Well, that's where they make the machines. So that doesn't mean that they invented it. No, that's true. They just capitalised on it. We don't know for sure. We are still working on a gelato versus ice cream episode. We've interviewed some people and we're going to interview some more oh, in the future. Contentious. And it's a, it's a little way off, but eventually we are going to see maybe can we find an answer to the gelato story or at least just a good story. So, yeah, that's what you're going to get for dessert. You might get some pastries, but after all those carbs, probably you're just going to want gelato, which is also technically carbs because it's all sugars. Yep. Sugars and creams, sugars and fats. There's some more carbs for you. Yeah, more carbs. So carbs, 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 carbsy, carbsy, carbs. But yeah, so definitely some other things you can look at. Food from travel. Carbs, 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 spam and carbs. Oh, and spam and carbs. There's no spam. It's pork. It's pork cheek dried. Guanciale. All right. That's it for this episode. Yes, do go and grab the show notes. Well, not the show notes. Actually, it's a full article on Roman food at foodfuntravel.com slash Rome podcast. And then you can, yeah, read about all the other things you can try while you're there. And we've got some other, we've got loads of articles on Rome, of course, because it's a popular destination. We've been there a few times. We've got like a little, like a two-day itinerary. Two-day walking tour on the the blog. I mean, just jump on the blog and type Rome into the search bar, which is somewhere in the top right corner of the blog. And Also, Italy is one of our featured destinations as well. So that should be on the homepage. Yeah. If you go into the destination section on our website, you can just search Italy and then loads of Rome stuff. So tons of different resources we've got for Rome. You can definitely keep yourself busy if you take a look at those. Uh, But start from foodfuntravel.com slash Rome podcasts. And I'm sure I will link out to some of those from that article as well. So you can find them nice and easily. All right. Well, that's it. So just finally to say, thanks for listening. Obviously, leave us a five-star review. Thank you to everybody that already has. Yeah, if you've left us a five-star review, that's awesome. We're actually talking about looking at some of the five-star reviews and people who leave a five-star review. We might give you a shout-out on the show and read your review out. Yeah. So I can't promise we'll do that for everybody, but I think that's something we might start doing for a while. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. And so, yeah, if you leave a five-star review, you get a shout-out. If you leave anything less than a five-star review, then... Uh, you'll get shouted at. You'll be shouted at. <laughs> <laughs> and unnamed. <laughs> And obviously, if your review is also entertaining and five stars, that's even better. Oh, that'll definitely make the cut. Yeah. So do it. And we'll give you a shout out. If you're a blogger or whatever, we'll give you a shout out for your blog name as well. Why not? So. Oh, we're all about shameless self-promotion. Yeah. Mention that in your review if you like. All right. That's it. And yeah. Keep subscribing. Keep listening. And we'll speak to you next time. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on your preferred podcast app or channel. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.